Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Detective Superintendent Dave Cowan is the commanding officer of the Organised Crime Division for Australia's Victoria Police, or VicPol, and the president of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Evidence-Based Policing. We talk about his journey into EBP, focused deterrence, and other experiments that VicPol are currently engaged with. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe, and this is the Reducing Crime podcast. Dave Cowan has been a police officer with Victoria Police in Australia for 33 years, recently in operational positions in southern Melbourne, and very recently as the detective superintendent in charge of the organised crime division. He has a Master's in Applied Criminology from Cambridge University, has completed the Senior Executives Programme at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and has been President of the Australian and New Zealand Society of Evidence-Based Policing since 2019. For his work in Evans-based policing, he was awarded the Distinguished Police Scientist Award from the Australian New Zealand Society in 2019, and he is this year's recipient of the Australian Institute of Criminology's Gold Award for Crime and Violence Prevention. Dave's run numerous field trials, including a focused deterrence experiment, a police legitimacy trial during COVID, an intelligence-led approach to hotspots, and a trial using behavioural science to reduce failure to appear at court, some of which you'll hear about in this podcast. He also recently completed a Winston Churchill Fellowship, investigating the implementation of evidence-based policing around the globe. This year's American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference was held in Las Vegas, and of course I, I had to go, you know, I'll, I'll take one for the team. And so, with a background of kids playing in a Vegas hotel swimming pool, Dave and I chatted poolside so he could bring to your ears both his wealth of knowledge and his Aussie accent. Is it data or data? <sighs> I don't know. Oh, and the kids departed after we started, so please bear with us. The audio quality improves after a few minutes. Wait, that's not jet lag, that, was it? That was you when uh, Simon had enough. You had a couple of beers last there night. There was a couple. There was a couple there. So we'll, we'll blame it on the jet lag, shall we? Yeah, let's let's blame the jet lag for sure. <laughs> oh god. You know what the rule is? Well, we are in Clark County. Okay, we, we are not in Las Vegas. If Look, anyone asks, I can see a great big hotel right across yeah, the road. Okay. Well, walking up and down the strip, it's Disneyland. It's a cesspool. It's everything. It really is. It's amazing. It's a sight to see. It is an overdose on the senses, isn't it? It is, yeah. But you've been here before, right? Yes. We've been here with the kids. We've been here on our honeymoon. I think Simon said it to me last night. He said, it's probably a place you only probably need to come here a couple of times, you know. And we should say that you came here with Simon Williams, who's the... Simon was the director for the Centre for Evidence-Based Policing in New Zealand. And now we're very fortunate he's come over to ANSBAR, which is Australian New Zealand Policing Advisory Agency. Relatively new role for him, isn't yeah, it? He's yeah, he's a good get for them because he brings a lot of uh, policing experience from multiple jurisdictions. As you say, this isn't somewhere that you need to come to a lot. No. Small doses. I think it starts with, you know, $22 cocktails and let's take in a show. But if at some point you're wandering around with a bucket load of quarters, you're heading towards your fifth trip to the all-you-can-eat buffet on a Tuesday morning at the Golden Nugget, you've probably been here a bit too often. A bit too often. And the glass sizes here are about three times what they are back home. Yeah, it's, it's really expensive, but they are very generous measures. Generous, yes. Very generous. Yes. You've got a few years in the job now, haven't you? 
Well, I've always thought of myself as the junior man. Yeah, not anymore, mate. No, I'm not. And <laughs> the grey hair's the clue. <laughs> I was recently working at a station where I was a trainee 33 years ago. I turned up to the front counter and it was surreal because I haven't been back there that often and the building hasn't changed. Well, that's a bit of an indictment to the, uh, <laughs> the maintenance budget, right? And everything came back to me and someone said to me, you've gone from feather duster to rooster. They've flipped the saying. I thought that was quite good because I was a trainee. I was a feather duster and I've come in as a superintendent. Well, I never spoke to a superintendent. If, you, oh. if a superintendent came in, you stood to attention, yeah. you know? But to come back as a superintendent, it was surreal. It really was. Do you find the cops have changed though? Do you find they're much more comfortable speaking to superintendents? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's a different kind of group of folk in policing. It now, is. Isn't it? You, you walk through the muster room and they're just, how are you, boss? You know, and you have a good chat. I still think they don't get to speak to officers that often. Like, it's a big organisation. Vic Pohl's 22,000 people. We should tell everybody that uh, Vic Pohl is the Australian shorthand for Victoria Police, yeah? yeah sorry, yes. It's a big organisation, you know. And they don't get to speak to senior officers that often. And my first day in those divisional commander roles, the very first thing I do is I'm going to every police station over the next couple of days and meet the senior sergeants with no agenda, just to listen to them and talk to them. What's working, what isn't. The role of sergeant in policing, I don't think you can underestimate its influence on frontline policing for sure. They have so much influence. As you prepare for your shift, as you kid up and as you leave the station, the things that you will do are the things that the sergeant will tell you to do. Guys, I want you to go here. I want you to get out. And, they're the, and so they wield a lot of influence. The troops listen to them. They're there three shifts a day. And I think we need to support the sergeants and communicate with them a bit better than we probably do. In VicPol, if I get past the promotion tests, and I become made up to a sergeant, what sort of training do I get for that role? In the lead up to being promoted, you, you will have been upgraded to sergeant for um, probably, in many instances, a year or more. It's kind of like an acting role? An acting role, yeah. But what training have you actually had? There's no specific training, that's the thing. It's not a job you can necessarily just get trained for and do. It's really an accumulation of your experience. Senior sergeants who sit over the sergeants, they are very good actually at working with them and making sure that they're buddied up with other sergeants. I wonder if that's an interesting opportunity at that point to start introducing evidence-based policing. That's a good point. I mean, some people say we should introduce at the academy. I'm not sure, to no. be honest. Like, at the academy, I was focused on how do I arrest someone? How do I do the brief and the legal process associated yeah. with that? How do I not get jammed up, get myself in trouble? How do I not look stupid? You yeah. know, how do I actually do this job? That's way too much to take yeah, on. exactly. I, I prefer catching up with people when they've got about five years service. Yep. They've driven fast cars, they've kicked a few doors in, they've got all of that out of their system. Mm. And I think at that point, they're open to a few more ideas of let's try something different, let's learn a bit more about the job. Yeah, I recently presented to some inspectors on some of the trials I've been leading. And I thought oh, this would be interesting to see whether they engage with it. So I didn't deliberately talk about the concepts of evidence-based policing. I think we sometimes talk too much about what it is. We can make it sound kind of academic. Yeah. It's more about, well, what does it mean in a practical sense? So talking to them about some of the data and the trials I led afterwards, you know, they weren't guys who would, would come up and, uh, and tell me it was good if they didn't believe it. But they really, they said, we need to do this more. So I think we need to be better at less talk about research methodologies and more talk about the practical application. 
When was the transition in your service to better understanding evidence-based policing for you? I had a light bulb moment, right? I saw this flyer and it was for the first Australian New Zealand evidence-based policing conference. And it, this was about eight years ago. And it said, do you want to know more about what works? Do you want to test policing strategies to understand their effects? Do you want to understand what other agencies are doing and some of the innovations? I thought, I want to be a part of that. So I went to the conference and that was it. It ticked something in me and it created probably a bit of a disorder. <laughs> I don't know, but I wanted to know more. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to do more. You were kind of fat, dumb and happy before that. Well, you're not fat. I mean, skinny is a rake, but you know, you're fat, dumb and happy before that. And now it's like the whole world's flipped, right? <laughs> exactly. And I do have moments where I think, why do you do this to yourself? You've got enough work to do uh, without loading yourself up with all this discretionary effort. But anyway... I don't want to be the guy who retires having all their emails checked, right? And having the tray clear. I don't care about emails. Well, I do if they're my boss, yeah, right? But what I, mean, yeah. what I mean here is we have to leave policing in a better state than when we arrived. And we can't just keep responding on a daily basis without adding to the actual knowledge and understanding of policing and being a bit more rigorous. I'm not saying that policing needs to be completely transformed by evidence-based policing, but it should have a seat at the table of decision-making. And I just think that evidence-based policing is one of those things that will add to the professionalism of policing. We've got some really impressive people that have great technical skills and knowledge and judgment in their fields, whether it's forensics or investigations or you name it. But when those type of particularly middle managers are exposed to the opportunities EBP presents, they often rise to the challenge. Yeah. And one of the things that's really important is coming up with really good questions. What are the key components of a good conference or some other mechanism that, that catches that light bulb moment for police officers? who are not yet bought into evidence-based policing. The conferences are a fantastic opportunity to bring police together to open up the thinking. As I say, 50% of the conference is what is presented and 50% are the connections that you make and the networks you create. And that's what happens and you leave the conference and then you can pick the phone up and say, Jerry, I, I wanna do this. How could I do it in a way where it's a bit more rigorous? And what I've found is that the conferences not only connect people, but a lot of good comes from them. So I suppose it's where my journey started, you know. So you came to the first conference and you got exposed to all of this stuff. What were the next steps for you then? It took a long time for me to come to terms with what it actually is, which is probably part of the issue with EBP. I mean, you've been in the job 20 years plus. Suddenly there's these people saying, there's a whole bunch of things that we don't know work. That introduces a lot of doubt, right? Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Were you comfortable with that idea of doubt? Well, it sort of affirmed something that was a bit implicit that you knew that no one really talked about. And you went, hell yeah, you know, we are flying by the seat of our pants too often <laughs> and we're going with... Don't tell the public, don't tell the public, <laughs> or the politicians. We're going with our best judgment, our intuition, our experience. And, there, and there's, you know, there's a lot of good people who make sound decisions, but there's some things that obviously we should be doing, right? But there's other things, well, it could work, or it could actually make the problem worse. But we don't actually know. So in the scheme of the whole busy nature of policing and the competing priorities, there has to be some small place 
to more rigorously test policing strategies for their effectiveness. I think in Australia we spend like $12 billion of the public's money on policing. Surely we need to be a little bit more rigorous around some of the strategies that we implement because we're talking about something important in here. We're talking about community safety. Yeah. I'm not saying that, we, that we're careless with that. We're doing our best, but there is an opportunity to do more. You hit on something that I think is underappreciated, which is it's not just whether it works or whether it doesn't. Is it making things worse? And that's one of the areas that is a real level of uncomfort, I think, for a lot of people. And people in policing have such good intentions. And there's often those good intentions manifest correctly. And sometimes a few things probably don't work as well as we hope. But to introduce the notion that you could actually be inadvertently making things worse puts people in a very uncomfortable position. Yeah, that's right. And I ran a trial recently around reducing serious public violence. And it was a focused deterrence trial. When you're talking about public violence, what are you talking about? What I'm talking about is robbery, armed robbery, carjacking, aggravated home invasion crime. Violent street crime. Violent street crime, not residential crime, not family violence. And we looked at the best evidence. That is the first place you should go to. Well, what, what does the evidence actually say? And we don't actually do that as often as we should. Right. And there's a body of work there around focused deterrence, which is delivering messages directly to offenders. And we ran this trial where we sent detectives and our youth specialist officers to offenders' homes. They weren't wanted, but they'd been involved in multiple incidents of serious public violence in the preceding three years. And we used behavioural science. We left them with a letter. We engaged with them using the pillars of procedural justice to be respectful and to engage their family members around them to say, look, you have been involved in a number of serious crimes. If you continue to reoffend, we have to tell you, you will get caught. That's the focus deterrence bit. They need to very clearly know that they're going to get caught. But you need to make some decisions here because if you continue down this path, you are likely to go to jail if you commit more crimes. And if you go to jail in the state of Victoria, you have a 50% chance of returning to jail. So you need to make some decisions about what you do. What was the receptivity of the people that were approached? This was really interesting. I had a bit of pushback, right, from some of the detectives who were doing this. Oh, so before you even got this, you were starting to run into barriers within policing. We've done this before, it doesn't work, and all the usual, you know, we're too busy. Hang on, police sit behind computers too much now. This is talking to offenders in a respectful way. And what we found was some of the detectives came back and said, we were stuck at the door for 15 minutes. And mum joined in and said, yeah, why are you hanging around those dickheads? <laughs> you need to wake up to yourself, you know. Good for mum. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, so the detectives, some of them were like, it was actually a good chat. I went out and did them. And it, it was good that, you know, parents joined in boyfriends, girlfriends. Some people politely told us to leave. In the most polite way, is, yes. <clears throat> as you can only expect. Exactly. Yeah. But, but actually, we were surprised with the way in which these people engage with us. What we learned, and this is put aside all the stats and the, it was a randomised trial and <gasps> statistical significance Curacy, and everything down, <laughs> and down. all that. Put aside all that. What are the qualitative insights that right. we can learn from that? Yes. Let's get the people together afterwards and say, the, the uniformed officers and the detectives, what did you learn from this? Yeah, this is why I love doing field work. Yeah. Uh, people don't understand, it's like, set up your randomized trial, but especially for the academics, throw on a vest, go out, go with the people doing the work. It's amazing the insights you learn about the data points that you're gathering. 
Exactly. And what, what we found was that when you arrest someone, it's not a good day to engage with them after you've pulled them out of a stolen car and their face is in the pavement and the handcuffs are on them. They don't particularly like you, right? <laughs> it's not a good day to talk about them reforming, right? It's a crisis. Everything in their life, all the decisions they've made have been wrong. Drugs, alcohol, the networks they've been hanging out in, the decisions they've made. And they've been dragged out of a stolen car. Okay? And it all so, comes to a head right Exactly. Then. It's a crisis. But when you engage with them outside a time of crisis, but in a respectful way and showing trustworthy motives that you actually want them to make the right decisions, they were more receptive to that conversation than most police expected. But that's the gold. I mean, it's not just about the data. It's those qualitative insights that we can draw as well. So if I just went with the qualitative evaluation, there's clearly a temptation here that would probably fall into the, the dare trap or the scared straight trap, which is everybody loved the program and thought it was fantastic because the detectives are finding it rewarding. And I'm sure if you went and spoke to a lot of the mums, they would be uh, happy. But what are the actual results you were getting? Because that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Does this actually reduce recidivism? We identified a thousand offenders that met our criteria in committing these offences. Yep. And I'm sitting down with this analyst, and gee, we've got good people in policing, you know. Uh, I said to him, can you randomly put them into two groups? And he's just silent for about five seconds. Tap, 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 tap. Yeah, I've done that. And I said, do you know you might have just changed people's lives? He's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So we just randomly put them into two groups. Now, here's the thing, like, why do people bang on about this randomization? What the hell are they talking about, right? When you analyze the characteristics of the two groups, so we've got 500 in group one, which is, say, the, the, the treatment group, and yep. 500 in the control group that don't get anything or don't just get what they normally get. We found that the characteristics were near identical. Yep, 80%. especially across a thousand. Exactly, 80% yeah. were male, 20% were female. The median age was like 24, half were, you know, half were under 24, half were over, etc. And here's the important one. The rate of recidivism was near identical. Perfect. Okay. There you go. Set, so, set it so, up nicely. So that's the magic that it gives you. You end up with two groups that are the same and you can say with a high degree of confidence, the only difference between the two groups is the intervention. Yeah. And normally in policing, we just do a before and after test. Yeah, and we cherry pick. We yeah. cherry pick the places that we think we're going to have most effect. Yeah. So we get to 500 days post implementation. Like, oh, you ran this for a while. So we ran it. It took a couple of months to run it. Oh, a couple of months to go and speak to everybody? Yep. Yep. Longer than we thought. And there was a bit of attrition there because people move on, etc. Because it's a trial that fundamentally is does it reduce repeat offending? You have to give it time. You have to give people time to offend. Exactly. So and get, know, and get caught. Exactly. So we get to about a year later. I said, oh, we must run those stats again, you know. And then by the time we did it, it was 500 days. So it was 500 offenders, 500 days later, which is very neat. And what we found was significant reductions in repeat offending in the treatment group. So they repeated at a rate much lower than the group that didn't get the visits. Do you have actual numbers, rough percentage? So we've got about a 15% reduction. And I'll take that every day of the week because these are victims that have been prevented from, from being harmed. Well, and also, it's not like the intervention was outrageously expensive. It's knocking on the door and speaking to people. And that's how I sold it to the detectives. Hang on, we spend too much time behind our computers. This is just getting out there and talking to people. If you walked down the street to get a cup of coffee and you ran into an offender you'd charged, what would you do? 
And so I talked to them. Of course. Yeah. We're sitting in cars and buying computers way too much. This is, you're driving past their front door, stop the police car, it's going to take 10 minutes, I'm not giving you a whole investigation to do, get out and have a chat. Yeah. And I didn't give them a prescriptive message, but you need to tell them that they're at risk of getting caught. You need to tell them that they need to actually make some deliberate decisions, offer some referrals. We had 15 different pathways where we could, if you need some help, we can make some referrals for you. And we left them with a letter which was in plain English, which we use Behavioural Insights Unit in Victoria to help us craft. Read that with your folks. And sometimes you would talk to the person at the door, they go inside, and I know as soon as that door shut, are you in trouble with the police again? What's going on? Give me that bit of paper. Let me have a read of it. Yeah, they're right. What are you going to do? You know, we don't want you to go to prison. We don't want you to go down on that merry-go-round. Well, the nice thing about the letter is that when the cops show up at your door, it can all be a bit of a flurry of information and stuff, a lot to take in, and it gives people a chance to sit and digest and think about a little bit more about what the message is. That's it. Were some people surprised that they made the shit list, for want of a phrase? Well, these guys have been charged multiple times. Um, in fact, what we found was they weren't specialists in violence. They were actually generalists in their offending. They had more offences for non-violent crime, but they have a propensity for violence. Makes sense. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. So they know the difference between a detective and a uniform officer. And when the detectives don't just come and visit you for no reason, okay? The detectives were coming here to tell you something important and you better listen. So that resonated. But the other thing was what we don't tend to do well is track things when we implement them. We tend to sort of push people out there, do the job and, you know. Well, I mean, isn't that how we solve most problems? We start an initiative. We're great at coming up with the idea. We're terrible about implementing it and terrible about tracking it up. Can't believe the number of police departments I've been to where the solution has been to form a squad. That's right. You form a squad and then you never evaluate that squad ever. And we'll go, oh, how many did you get? You know, and we roughly collate the numbers and we try and put, put together something that sort of at least reflects that we did a reasonable job. But in this case, I wanted it to be easy, but I wanted to capture all the data. So we got them to fill in a tick and flick sheet I thought was the best thing. They could have done it on their mobile devices. No, just take the form, fill it in, come out from uh, the visit, they'd sit in their car and it would take them literally two minutes to tick all these boxes. Well, I have been, and I'm still in the middle of work with the transit police in Philadelphia, and we created a mobile app for the officers to easily enter the information. But of course, because I think it's important for us to go out and actually understand the implementation, pretty soon afterwards, we're doing field work, wandering around, and they said, is there any chance you can just give this on a paper form? Because they have to fill in a paper log anyway. Right. So we just gave them instead a form that was the same size and shape as their existing paper log that easily fitted in their notebook. But they could just write that in so much more quickly than entering the data into a mobile phone app. It sounds old-fashioned, but it works. Yeah. It actually works. What I could do was every visit needed to be acquitted. I needed a return for every visit. And then what we could do is plug all that into Excel and then we could analyze all the data. And that gave us some really good insights beyond just the recidivism rates, the receptivity of referrals, whether parents were involved in the discussions, how respectful they were in the interactions. I think 80% were rated as respectful interactions. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Better than I was expecting. Yeah. I was going to go 50-50, fuck you. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but any chance that you can or you can create a, like a one-pager that people can download and learn a little bit more about this? No problem. And, and I'll buy you a beer. Come on. Yeah, okay, I'll hold to that. Police don't need a research paper, right? No. We will do the research paper because that means it's recorded properly and it can be referenced, right? Yeah. 
but we need to communicate with police in better ways. Research papers, God, they, they won't even get through reading the abstract. Their eyes will be rolling in their head. I know how they feel. Exactly. Yeah, so, I'm the same. So I'll hold you to this. You create a one-pager, and uh, for listeners of the podcast, if you come to Dave Cowan's entry on reducingcrime.com slash podcast, there'll be a link there to Dave's one-pager, and if it's not there, you can, can blame, blame Dave. Yeah, exactly. Now, when I visited you, we caught up with one of your colleagues in um, the Delaware. Kevin Thomas in Philadelphia, please. I just mainly remember us having beers. Well, Kevin doesn't join us for beers, but I remember us having beers. Yeah, there there was some beers in there. You put a few police together, you share ideas. Yeah. Kevin's grabbed that and he's thinking about how he might apply it in his environment. And that's the contagious nature of EVP. Yeah, we're trying to make it work now. And look, to be honest, when I designed it, I don't think I fully understood how David Kennedy, who was the original academic who led this whole field. Now, I've actually done something a little bit different to what he did, which is, which is fine. I mean, it's all about replication and, and, and the situations that you, you need to apply your, your research to. But what I think is important is that we have to understand that we can't rigidly sit with these things. It's a big planet. You've got to apply it for what works in your context, for your environment, for your offending community, what works within the police service. I don't have a problem with people adapting to local conditions. I think that's eminently sensible. Exactly. And Melbourne is not a city in America where gangs are shooting each other like they were confronted with there. But the weather's a lot more unpredictable, for one thing. (laughs) The, The principles of the theory were really important. And look, while I've mentioned theory, I mean, criminological theory sounds really boring. Sorry, what we're saying, I nodded off. (laughs) Go with, say, deterrence theory. Police are always talking about holding offenders to account, but we don't share with police or we don't teach police around the fundamental principles of deterrence. The theory that I've been exposed to, a lot of it, yeah, I'll put it that, I can't understand that, but there's a lot of it that is really helpful to police. Yeah, I'd say there's a small amount that's helpful to police. A lot of it's esoteric navel-gazing. Yeah. You know, and it's like, ah, uh, no. But I think there are four or five that, you know, an understanding of how to apply those. For me, at least, it's explain to me how it's going to work. What is the mechanism by which it works? And I think once you start talking about the mechanism, that's when you get people interested in, th- in thinking about theory. And then they can start thinking about how they can apply it to their own challenges. And that's the important bit. For me, I mean, I have found some theory to be helpful in, in me understanding how I might approach some problems. But you're right, you know, there's a lot of theory that God knows what it means and how we can apply it in policing. Now, yeah, I mean, I think rational choice is useful to know, routine activities, temporal constraint theory, if people want to read about that. I think these things help understand how offenders behave in time and space, which are where we need them to change the decision-making, reduce the opportunities. That's definitely a big part of it. Or in your case, in the trial that you were just talking about, to understand that they're not anonymous, they're actually on the radar in a significant way, and there is the likelihood of real consequences coming to play. Offenders underestimate the risk of getting caught, and we need to tell them that they are on the radar, and yeah, they're not anonymously going into the world committing crime. They're so special, we've visited them to tell them that. Now, I mentioned that trial was a randomised trial. You're running a few other trials right now, aren't you? I've run a few over the years. With EBP, there's a lot of talk about randomised trials, right? And a lot of people misquote how that fits into EBP. They're an aspirational goal. They're complicated to set up, but if you can do them, they're worth their weight in gold. Exactly. However, they're not the only thing. Exactly. And give me 
an operationally relevant trial that is a lesser methodology any day of the week. And if I can do an RCT, great. But, you know, give me something at least with a bit more rigor than what we normally do, and that will be valuable. Which is suspicious normally. <laughs> hey, it worked, right, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, sure it did. Why not? Yeah. Well, and, and the people that sort of want to bang on about the problem of randomized trials, don't be worried about randomized trials. What you should be more concerned about is most of the policing strategies that you implement haven't been evaluated with a lesser methodology. So let's just be a little bit more rigorous in some of the things that we do. Yeah, most of the things we do have not been evaluated at all. Even the fundamental aspects of policing. An example I use a lot is roll call. We have no idea how to do roll call. What's the best way to do roll call? We've had policing for nearly 200 years. We have no idea how to do roll call. For me, I think it's worth pointing out that I think that the lowest level is some kind of a control group, some kind of a control area. It drives me nuts when people do something citywide and then say, did it work? Well, yeah, I mean, we can use very complicated time series techniques and stuff like that, but it would have been a lot easier if you'd just done it in one part of the city and not in some other part of the city that would have worked as a nice control. That, for me, is like the minimum bar. I mean, the RCTs are at the top, but if you can at least have some kind of a control condition, a group of people who are not getting the treatment or a group of places that are not getting the treatment, that, that, that for me, is, I think, the limit. Does that make sense? I think police get that because... When you say, look, uh, the, the crime numbers have dropped in a before and after uh, analysis, they'll go, yeah, that was winter, this was summer, that was COVID, this is pre-COVID. You know, so police get the limitations of just a before and after. They want more, but they haven't been trained in some of the techniques that might help them have greater confidence in the results. Like I ran a trial as we were in COVID lockdown in Victoria. We had one of the longest lockdowns in the world. We issued 50,000 fines, $1,652. Each, you know, wow. for not wearing a mask, being hold out, and we hold had. Hold on a minute. One thousand. How much? Six hundred and fifty-two dollars. What uh, is it? Twelve hundred. AUD in USD. Okay, so that's basically one thousand one hundred US dollars for yeah. breaching COVID. And follow up. One thousand six hundred and fifty-two seems strangely specific. Ah, uh, yeah, some bizarre way they calculate how we do fines, but all our fines are expensive in Australia. I think relatively to the rest of the world. Eleven hundred, eleven hundred US dollars yeah. for breaching COVID for just going outside. Yeah. So well, it was it was a really difficult time, and uh, God, we don't want to go back to talking about COVID. But we had our operation where we were sending our police out to do our COVID compliance. And I was conscious that we wanted to do it in a way where we didn't erode confidence of the public. So half the officers that were working this operation, we managed to train them in the principles of procedural justice, yep. which cops get when you explain it to them. It sounds a bit serious, but it's being respectful. It's being neutral and allowing people to speak and ultimately showing trustworthy motives. When you walk away from that person, if that person says they actually cared for me, that's what we want to achieve. So when you're interacting with the public, here's some ways that you can do it around COVID. And I, I picked up the phone. How are we going to do this? What works? Once again, what does the evidence say? Looked at the Campbell Collaboration Systematic Review on Procedural Justice, Police Legitimacy. Picked up the phone and rang Professor Lorraine Masrol and Dr. Sarah Bennett, who are experts in this field. They come up with an acronym PACT, Purpose, Acknowledgement, Cooperation and Thanks. We gave the officers cards with a QR code and after every interaction with the public, whether it was just, you know, can you please wear a mask or what have you, can you do a community survey for us? So both the officers that were trained and the officers that weren't trained doing this role had to give the surveys out. 
end result is, when we looked at the results from the survey, there was a series of questions. It was, did they treat me fairly? Did they respect me? Did they care for me? All these indicators. And they were all rated at four and a half out of five. Really good results. How did that compare to the, the officers that hadn't been trained? That is a very good question. The officers that weren't trained in the procedural justice, we didn't get any data on because they didn't give the tickets out. And that just says something. The officers that were trained in the police legitimacy, they got it. They got such a positive response. They didn't mind giving out the community surveys. But the other officers didn't want to give out the community surveys. And so is that a failed experiment? Hell no. It tells you a great deal. It tells you a lot. And was it a randomised trial? No. I couldn't randomise the officers into groups because they mix with other officers and you can't do it. So I've just gone, okay, there's a limitation to this study. But it's still a good control group. It's still a good methodology. Absolutely. And is it a good question? Is it relevant to the policing environment? It's fantastic. Wow, it's an important question because it's not just about COVID. This is about fundamentally how police interact with citizens. And it's really important. What's been the receptivity of senior leadership in VicPol to you doing more and more of these studies? Was there initial reticence? Uh, is that improved? What's, what's been the, your experience over time now? I don't think anyone's actually been negative or blocking. Probably some indifference from some and some enthusiasm from others. Okay. Our Chief Commissioner Shane Patton, he recently opened up the um, Global Evidence-Based Policing Conference. So when your Chief says this is important, we need to do this a little bit more than we currently do. That says a lot. We've made progress. If I look back to the eight or nine years ago when I went to that first conference, you know, there wasn't really much happening. I think there's a lot to be said for understanding that sometimes progress is a slow, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And the other part of progress is, I've got a saying, if there's no pushback, there's no change. Right. Pushback so is a symptom of people adapting to something new. Some change. And yeah. you need to support them through that process. So I think we need to be a little bit kinder when we talk about EBP, not beat the police up because they're not doing it and have some highbrow attitude that you're not running randomised trials. Well, it's not about that. It's actually just about improving police knowledge, improving police professionalism. And here's the big one. It's actually about innovation. It's about communicating research and using research in your operational strategies. And as, as Cynthia Lum says, does research even have a seat at the table? Right. You know, and, and I like that saying because what it implies is there are many seats at the table. Research is just one. It's not the most important thing, but there are occasions and situations where we can actually say, hey guys, we might do this in a more robust way and we might actually pick up the phone and get some help on this. You know, someone like Justin or yourself and just say, hack Jerry or Justin or Lorraine, how could we do this? How could we do this in a way where we actually test it because it's important. What are some of the hurdles that people who are trying to push this forward are running into there? They're looking for the organization, organizational structures to just solve the problem for them or a strategy to solve the problem for them. They want it nice and simple. Yeah. But it can't be made that simple. Structures don't change culture. You actually need leadership. As a senior officer, you need to say, guys, have we ever actually engaged with anyone from academia who might be able to work with us on this? Whether it's family violence or, or street violence or whatever it is, you know? How might we tackle these problems a little bit differently? I mean, you said it, policing has a fundamental lack of curiosity about policing. 
we talk about innovation, but often we're just tinkering around the edges. Why don't we put fire trucks in hotspots, right? Get the fire department out there and create guardianship. Now, that's a little bit innovative, right? I mean, anything that gets them out of the damn station. <laughs> well, it's a strange environment, the, police, the fire department and police department relationships with community here. That's I'm trying true. to understand it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wonder if once people have a little bit of rank, they get the sense that they're not allowed to not know anything. They're obliged to at least convey the sense that they have all the answers to all the questions. I mean, everybody in policing is an alpha male, and that's just the women. <laughs> I think you nailed that. Because everybody wants to be really super decisive, making decisions. You go to a ComStat meeting, and I'm going, oh, we need to think about that problem more. And you just see some captain or some major just reel off some plan with no idea what they're going to do and whether it's going to work or not. Exactly. We, 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 we don't ponder. We don't ponder. So uh, it's lunchtime. It's hot. Hot. The bar's open. We're at the pool at the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference in Las Vegas. I kind of feel that... I know where we're going. Yeah, that seems to work for me. All right, you lead the way. Do it. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Bye. That was episode 64 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Viva Las Vegas in May 2023. Find me on Twitter at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe or at underscore Reducing Crime. And then DM me if you're an instructor and you want transcripts or spreadsheets of multiple choice questions for any episode. And please follow, like and subscribe to Reducing Crime wherever you found this. Like this podcast, subscribing or the odd like here and there costs absolutely nothing. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>